This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good whatever time of the day you are listening to this podcast, if at all. How's everybody doing? I'm doing pretty good. I uh, I liked writing this week's blog and now this, this podcast that you are either not or do not, depending on the title of the episode, listening to or title of this podcast episode. Anyway, after that horrific introduction, so I am having a pretty good week thinking about all this other stuff and I've really kind of powered through this one because I've wanted to write something and talk about something like this for a very long time because I think it's just so asinine and so bizarre that this topic even has to be discussed among people and kind of shows where the power-hungry psychopaths that are occupying some positions of power, unfortunately, are going on all this kind of stuff. And I think it's it's just, it's unfortunate that people are falling for this messaging, which especially young people and especially the people that are in a marginalized group or people that are kind of, you know, in a minority or whichever you want to call it. And I think that this needs to stop immediately. We need to kind of just pump the brakes on this, really kind of lean into all this stuff. And with decision-making, the topic of today's podcast, want to make sure that we are just knowing the importance of our actions. That's the, that's the crux of the argument I want to drive home to you. The crux of the argument is that we need to make good decisions in order to live Good lives. Does that always happen? No. But does it give you the best chance for it to happen? I think so. And I would like to prove it with this week's post-podcast, whichever medium you're absorbing this through, podcast of you, this is going and being perceived by your ears. So without further ado, here we go. Optimism is a hard thing to come by in today's society. It can be found in most mindsets and talking points, as mentioned earlier, and certainly that in those who supposedly carry the water of the mainstream narrative. Not everything should be positive because not, and not everything is positive. Not everything should be negative because not everything is negative. We must draw distinctions between the mindful and the mindless. One creates, the other destroys. However, at the end of the day, a spade must be called a spade. And unfortunately for all of us, most of the spades that we're turning up in our decks seem to be coming up with bad intentions to constantly fuck us in the ass. We hear horrible things a lot of the time. We doom scroll. Our batshit Anson's is either QAnon or Great Reset-related conspiracy theories in Facebook DMs. We throw virtual shit at one another via tweets and Instagram posts because we are, indeed, that primal. As a very, and I mean very, low-level contributor to the commentary of our seemingly burning world, this can be tough to take in all the time. It's why so many, quote, cultural commentators and, quote, influencers make their money off of making everyone else miserable. And to be fair, why wouldn't they? 
Misery pays. Misery sells advertisements. Misery hates, makes people hate one another. It makes people resort to their lowest instincts to cope with the reality that they absorb themselves within. But occasionally, there are voices of hope that surface in the frothing sea of drudgery. They can say negative things and be overall pessimistic around their world, sure. But their utility usurps that. They can be voices of reason, of sanity. They can say that, even though things are bad, things can get better at the individual level among the masses. We are not necessarily the victims of what is going on around us, much to the either disbelief or fury of those around us. There are other ways. Better ways. Ways in which we can come out as different people. As stronger people. One of those voices is a man named Zuby. Now, before you go out calling him a douchebag that only goes by one name, I think a couple of things need to be clarified. First, he is not a douchebag. I should know. I met him at Zilker Park last week. He's a super nice guy. Second, he's an incredibly fascinating person. He's a rapper, cultural commentator, eloquent tweeter, and has an excellent speaking voice. I mean, like seriously, if Morgan Freeman ever decides to croak, my money is on this dude to take his place. Each of those individual traits are remarkably hard to come by in today's world. Putting them all together into one functioning human being is damn near impossible. But most importantly, Zuby is one thing above all else. Sane. Zuby hosted our friend and fellow sane person James Lindsay on his podcast, where I'll talk with Zuby to discuss the current cultural conflict. Lindsay, you may remember, infam infamously published the Grievance Studies Affair along with Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian, which signed a light on the insanity going on in the modern higher education system. This participation made Lindsay the pariah of those institutions and a high-priority target and threat to those inhabited by them. As someone who rebelled, Lindsay was promptly excommunicated from that mainstream community and became a rogue intellectual. Lindsay's primary target, if you've read even a sentence of his work, is the modern intersectional and woke mafia that has infiltrated American culture. Now, to be clear from the jump, this is not opposing either of these topics. We've covered them both before, so there's no need to really go back there again if we don't want to, and I don't think we want to. This is not degrading the once-good merits of either of them. We've talked about those before, and we'll continue to talk about their virtues in the future, including some in this post. But neither of those is a reasonable excuse for the monstrosity that has ruined lives and has obliterated our national discourse in nearly every issue imaginable. It's destroying our society from both the woke and anti-woke side of the equation. Lindsay, among many other brave, brave ones, is attempting to stop a takeover from consuming America in total, and he and all of his compatriots should be commended for that. Zuby is one of those compatriots. Even though he's been co commenting and rapping for a long time, one breakthrough incident catapulted him into the stratosphere. Zuby, on top of those, all those other things mentioned previously, is also an author. The one book he authored was a fitness book, where he shared his secrets on nutrition and workouts to the masses in hopes to inspire people to make positive changes to their health. Having met the guy, I can vouch for him. He is, indeed, in his own terms, hashtag Jacksonated. But Zuby noticed something about the hashtag Jacksonated community that he found fascinating. More and more frequently, he was noticing that people were saying that men and women were separated not by biology, only by social construct. Gender didn't exist, according to those people. It was part of, like, the patriarchy or something. Zuby, seeing the obvious absurdity to these claims, chose a demonstrative way to prove it false. Being hashtag Jacksonated, Zuby prided himself on one exercise in particular. Deadlifting. He and many others considered him to be, so, be very good at it. So, to prove his point, he identified as a woman and absolutely shattered his home country of Britain's female deadlifting record. He then posted the video to Twitter, where it went viral and made the world simultaneously explode. 
a couple of appearances on Joe Rogan and other podcasts later, and Zuby is a household name, with that name being emblemized on his aforementioned podcast. So, back to that conversation on his podcast between him and Lindsay. The podcast that unfolded between these two men was, to be honest, very plain. They talked about the aforementioned insanity, how crazy people were, and how anything and everything was going to shit. But, surprisingly, they ended on a non-anti-woke note. Lindsay ended on a tangent of incredible passion and optimism. His message was simple. By most stretches of your own imagination and comprehension, you can give yourself the best shot at living a productive life. Regardless of all the talk of ideologues, their systems, and their combined consequences, regardless of everything crazy that has, is, and will happen in the world, you can defy mostly all of it. The best shot at living a productive life is not resting your hopes and dreams in the things that falsely, quote, define much of our world. Rather, it is something that, unfortunately, most people don't realize. Your decisions. On its face, this may seem like a myth to you. You may have been told that this is not true. You may have been told that you're anyone who tells you that it is true, they're somehow a bad person. That they're a godforsaken isterism. That they're on an automatic don't-go-there zone. That they're somehow lying to you. These people that fer- parrot this falsehood currently have made this claim before. Or certainly, I should say, have made this claim before. They've shouted it, and they've shouted against anything against it. The ideologues that Lindsay and Zuby talked about don't like this message. They don't like the fact that individual people are, in fact, individual people. They don't like the fact that they aren't inconvenient groups they can categorically organize and throw under the bus. They don't like the fact that they're not in their complete and total control. In actuality, they hate all of these things. And no wonder. It's inconvenient for them. It won't get them to where they need to be. The reason that this will not get them to where they want to be is that it's a blatant and obvious untruth. One that has been proven false from nearly every single walk of life inside America. It has been done by every single ethnic group, gender, sexual orientation, color, creed, whatever. Decision-making, and good decision-making at that, is the most powerful driving force to successful people who are committed to excellence that the world has ever seen. It is the ultimate technology, the most everlasting innovation. It is what has made human beings, particularly the human beings that have come through America, so unbelievably remarkable in so many unbelievably remarkable different ways. The counter-narrative that we discussed, the one that constantly preaches that good decision-making is somehow bad, that is a sign of, quote, oppression if you go down this road, is a blatant lie. It's a malicious anti-truth to persuade people through false reasoning to not go down this path. For reasons that we'll get into later, many people, particularly those of the aforementioned intersectionality and woke classes, don't want you to realize this. The people they supposedly want to look out for are, ironically and horrifically, those they end up hurting the most by espousing this mentality. This is a horrible thing to do on all fronts. It automatically places people on the weak side of the toughness gap. It robs them of their sovereignty, of their individuality, and ultimately of their decency and destiny. This is something that we cannot allow to stand. As fellow individuals that should care about the individualism and individual values of others, we must chart a different course to show others the way. The good thing is that you are not alone if you feel that the counter-narrative is wrong. In fact, I believe it to be most people that feel this way, especially if they are unflinchingly honest with themselves. The reality about privilege is that we all pursue it, no matter who you are or what our immutable characteristics are composed of. We all want to have an elevated status in some capacity in life. There is nothing wrong with that unless you abuse it. We should stop pretending that there is. Anything that deters your striving for a better life is no friend of yours nor anyone else's. 
If anything is a universal reality of the human experience, it would be that good decision-making correlates to an improvement in life across all facets. The better decisions you make, the better the overall the, the outcome excuse me, of whatever your goal is. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. What matters is the quality of the decisions you espouse. Not everything in the world is as equal or fair as it should be. It would be ignorant to acknowledge that it is. But it would be equally so to immediately denounce the world as being skewed in the opposite direction, that everything is drastically unequal and unfair. The latter is a much bigger disservice than the former. To prove this, we need to first understand why good decisions have the greatest impact on the outcome of anyone's life. After, we must discuss the inverse as to why the counter-narrative is being pushed against the real one. Finally, we will land the plane by explaining what steps you can take within your life to enforce good decisions over bad ones, while conversely flipping the lie of the counter-narrative on its head. So, by all means, grab a platitude and let's get started. It would be both untrue and unwise to say that every person has the same standards when they enter the world. No matter what people try to say, there are some people that have, been be that have it better than others from the simple fact of where they're born. A child born in rural Africa is not the same as a child born on the Upper West Side. Both these child children will have problems, because both of them are humans. But if you are a betting man, you can bet with almost universal certainty that one will have more difficult circumstances than the other. And no, it's not the one whose mother yelled at her teacher after school because she was frustrated that her hot yoga instructor had the nerve to show up three minutes late. America began as an underdog nation. We were coupled to a nation that, at the time, was the greatest empire in the history of the Western world. We were not independent, nor did anyone else expect us to be if we had, had the nerve to separate from England. But we did, and we surpassed not only the West, but every nation in every possible aspect imaginable in history. Americans love an underdog because America itself is an underdog. The underdog mentality and story is the reason that the American dream exists. Stories we hear that are so often impossibly difficult can truly only happen here. Even though America is very flawed, particularly in terms of its history, our alchemy is the best chance for individuals to get ahead in life. People like David Goggins and J.D. Vance are exceptional people in large part because America allowed them to be. But this does not nearly tell the entire story. It only tells the starting point. This is where the double-edged sword of the narrative we mentioned earlier comes in. There is no doubt that all, at all that where you come from and who you are matters. But it is not all that matters either. As we just mentioned, it is just a starting point. Starting points do not define your life. That's the whole point of a starting point, by the way. It's only relevant at that specific point in time. Children are allowed and should be encouraged to have innocence. However, once they become adults... Their innocence goes away because it has to go away. America is not of things, or, or America is not a lot of not a lot of things. Or oh God, Jesus Christ, America is a lot of things, but it is not Neverland. You have to get old here. You have to grow up. David Goggins and J.D. Vance are merely two of the millions of Americans who have come and gone throughout the years of our nation's existence, who have lived incredibly fulfilling lives that came from incredibly detrimental circumstances. Most of them you will never know. They're not famous, notable, or recognizable. They're just average, ordinary men and women who decided to make something of themselves. Keyword, decided. 
But we are not without examples and models, and we should be very glad when we have them. A great example comes from a man who most have heard of in the abstract, but don't know in greater detail. He's not fancy at all. He's quite boring, actually. He speaks articulately and intelligently, but also dull and plain. He doesn't have a fancy profession. Even the one he broke into the mainstream for, twice, wasn't even that notable. But he's one of the best examples of the American dream and its necessarily implications of good decision-making that we can look towards. Dr. Ben Carson was born in 1951 to a 21-year-old mother in Detroit, Michigan. His father masked himself as a man of faith, but secretly had a second family. When Carson's mother found out, she left and took her children to live on their own. Detroit in that time period wasn't necessarily the greatest place to live. Sure, the car market was booming, the economy was good, but being a black person in that area wasn't necessarily a bowl of rainbow kittens either. Lots of things were very backwards, and Carson, being the perceptive child that he was, picked up on that. Carson soon descended, like most men without proper father figures and guidance, into a life of academic delinquency and social degeneracy. He was a self-professed angry and violent child. He physically assaulted his mother and almost stabbed a friend to death with a knife while driving in his car. He didn't give a fuck about his grades or being an upstanding citizen. This is a sad reality for young boys of all colors when they aren't pushed in a constructive direction. All that energy, potential, and talent are wasted by being channeled into shittier and shittier cause with nothing decent to prove as a buffer. But fortunately for Dr. Carson, his mother had had enough. When she began to notice this behavior, she began to impose a difficult task on him and his brother. Every week, they would read two books and provide her with two reports on them to show that they had, you know, actually read them. After this decision was made, Carson's life and corresponding decisions began to take off like a rocket ship. He joined the chess club. He became a lab assistant for his high school and local universities. He's re he read the Bible, pun intended, religiously. He took on the euphonium, of all things. His overall intelligence began to snowball until his brain was nearly an unstoppable force. And for that force, Carson was later accepted into Yale on full scholarship. Always aspiring to be a doctor, Carson eventually ended up wound up being a neurosurgeon at the famed Johns Hopkins University. His defining moment came when he became the first surgeon in history to successfully separate the, hair of the heads of a pair of conjoined twins while still in the womb. Afterwards, Carson became a sort of mythical medical superman. His notoriety exploded, with, with, which eventually culminated into a movie made about him, his life, starring Cuba Gooding Jr. Can't talk today, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he didn't stop there. Carson wanted to give back and to share what he had learned to others, particularly those that came from similar situations. He decided to run for president in 2016, but was unsuccessful. However, due to his impressive resume and qualifications, he was appointed to be the head of housing and urban development by President Trump where he served his entire four-year term before the election of President Biden. Regardless of his relationship with President Trump or his political facts, it's undeniable that Dr. Ben Carson, at least in my opinion, is one of the most accomplished and impressive men in modern American history. What a life he has lived, and more importantly, what lives has he improved? That is the central point of Carson's and so many others' stories. The main reason why good decision-making has the greatest impact on the outcome of lives everywhere is that it shows people the avenue towards something better. Sadly, in our world, the counter-narrative that you're confined to whatever life you live based on immutable characteristics gets pushed far too often, especially on young children, such as Ben Carson when he was a young child. The reason for this is that they cannot see the hope in their circumstances. Why even try, they ask. Better quit while you're ahead. Might as well pack it up and go home. But this, as mentioned is a lie. You are not confined to the circumstance of your life, no matter who you are. 
It does not matter where that place is, whether it's from where Ben Carson came from or where the children of Hollywood celebrities come from, and I'll let you decide which place is actually worse. But what matters more is where you go from that original place. What matters is what you choose to channel that circumstance into. Detroit is a rough place to grow up. It always has been. I bet a serious amount of money that a lot of other children that Ben Carson grew up with succumbed to the less ideal aspects of the city for some other breed of false idol. They got sold a false bill of goods, innocently fell for it, and never looked back only to see what could have been. But due to good decision-making, there can be another way. Ben Carson made a lot of bad decisions. Tempting to whack your mother over the head with a hammer is a bold ambition, to say the least. But his good decisions outweighed his bad decisions, resulting in the quality of his life being weighted in favorable fashion as well. What this does is give people hope that they do not have to be confined to what people who know nothing about them tell them what their identity is. Their fate is not set in stone. Their story is not written. If you were told that your story ended up after your most painful and or worst moment, you would raise an obvious objection. Why? Because that moment is too simplistic to define you. You're the sum of your life's parts, with decisions being the primary inputs. Knowing that you can make good ones is a very valuable insight. They show you that you can lead your life from the front instead of being enslaved by people from the back. The second reason might sound good coming from me, or weird coming from me, but hear, it, hear me out. The second reason why good decisions having the greatest impact on our lives is simple. They feel good. Now, before your heads implode, let me explain. I have been known from time to time to mercilessly roast the quote, it makes you feel good song and dance. I believe I've been very, very justified in those claims. In the vast majority of cases, leading with feelings is the worst thing you can do. We always lead with feelings because that's how our brains work, but we need to have some sort of rationality bolstering them in order to keep them tethered to reality. Otherwise, we would just be clusterfucking each other in the brain as hard as we can, which unfortunately isn't nearly as fun as it sounds. But in the context of this argument, two things need to be set straight. First, you really aren't leading with your feelings. Good decisions are very arduous and hard processes. Feelings are not this way. Feelings are very impulsive and very irrational. They don't have a luxury of using the wait-and-see approach. They're tuned into the clusterfuck model, remember? Second, no one said that feelings were irrelevant. If they were, love wouldn't be a thing. More importantly, Troy wouldn't be a thing. And if we can all agree on anything in this world, it's for damn sure that Helen fleeing Sparta to be with Paris and causing hundreds of thousands of men to be slaughtered over one woman is by far one of the best things to happen in reportedly human history. There is a burden that comes along with doing heavy things. However, to the contrary of what most of you, what you'll hear, this is a good thing. Doing hard and heavy things makes you feel much better. Usually, since these things are indeed hard and heavy, they'll make you better in the long run. The body and mind both adapt very well to whatever they are trained to. It doesn't matter if those things are good or bad. What matters is simply what your body chooses to take in. For example, on a second podcast with evolutionary biologists Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, Joe Rogan made a reference to this in terms of diet. Your body, the ultimate machine, is naturally training itself to crave whatever last satiated it. Both fast foods and salads accomplish the ultimate goal of nourishing your body. It doesn't really care about much else. So, ergo, the key is to train your body to eat more salads and fast foods so your body doesn't begin to break down and go to hell. The same is true in regards to making good decisions. You can train your mind to accept that it was better to, that it is better, excuse me, to make good decisions rather than bad ones. 
once you see that your life is better, your brain and psyche begin to rewire themselves around that principle. You get on the dopamine roller coaster, although hopefully without the massive drop, and ride that motherfucker to the greener pastures of good decisions and the rewards you can reap from a lot of them. Contrary to both myself and my people like myself, feeling good has a lot of utility. If we're honest with ourselves, it's why we do most things in the first place. We're not about to buy denying biology in this medium. But we are about leveraging biology to turn it into a constructive favor for both us and those we care for. Lastly, for my second holy fuck moment of this section, I should get a medal. It allows other people around you, and mostly people who come from the same situation you do, to see that some, there is someone like them that can do something extraordinary. And this might also sound absolutely incredible coming from me. Sam talking about diversity after leading by ghetto-stomping intersectionality and woke culture, pinch me, I'm dreaming, originality. So, allow me once again to clarify. I'm a fan of true diversity of expression and thought. I like people of all types. I don't hate anyone. Well, a couple people, but very, very rare. What I do hate is when people think of those, quote, people of all types need to occupy a certain amount of space, job, or whatever the case to be considered, quote, diverse. That just leads to shittier basketball and more angry Karen screaming at me on the internet. Translation, nothing good. But let me give the diversity devil his due. The most important part of real diversity is that it is important to see, no matter who you are or what you look like, that success can be achieved for other reasons. It is not achieved because of those factors, but because of the performance that you can make it at the individual level. It could be the NBA, it could be activism, or it could be something else. But the one thing that makes it universally accepted is because of one reason. Good decisions. People stratify themselves in all sorts of ways. And this is a good thing. We need people to occupy different jobs and live in different places and value different things. That is why actual diversity is so important. All people should have the opportunity to do all things. Anything that disqualifies or negates this should be vehemently opposed. But anything that goes in its inverse, where your diversity is treated as a value, a flat-out ridiculous assertion on its face, should be treated in the exact same fashion. It automatically panders and punches down on the individual. It crushes their souls in favor of collective action. As human beings attempting to be decent human beings, this cannot and should not stand. However, there is an attempt, as shown by the counter-narrative, to make it stand. To see why it's being pushed, let's look at the recently infamous example. Or a recently infamous example, excuse me. It's a very peculiar phenomenon to realize how drawn most cultures are to some sort of team sports. Whether it's American football in the U.S., other football and lesser football in other countries, or two local Austinites engaging in the bizarre sport of pickleball, something about them engages our senses in an immensely powerful fashion. They grip our emotions and feed our souls. They're remarkably human in both their aspirations and their vulnerability. In many ways, they're a direct reflection of who we are as individuals. Much like great works of film and literature, sports have a way of immersing themselves in our individual thoughts and actions. You hurt when your favorite character hurts. 
You feel immense joy when the hero of your favorite book achieves triumph. You revel in community engagement when your favorite sports team wins a game. All boundaries for that specific moment are taken down. You become one body, one entity. You feel things that you wouldn't perceive as logical to feel. It doesn't seem to make sense from a sensible perspective. We're constantly left to wonder. The National Football League has an unofficial holiday, if you can call it that, known as, quote, Black Monday. Black Monday, in reference to the stock market crashes of the olden days, is the Monday after the last Sunday of the regular season of the NFL's 17-game schedule. It is also the day where NFL owners, under immense pressure from their fans, are pressured to make immediate changes to help their teams have greater success into the future. The word fan is short for fanatic. NFL fans, in my estimation, are particularly fanatical, especially when there are folding tables and kegs of beer involved. The most common change that NFL owners make on Black Monday is the firing of their head coach. NFL head coaches are under tremendous pressure to perform at their job. It's not quite quarterback-level pressure, but it's certainly not nothing. And since there is more money and star power tied up in the quarterback position, NFL coaches are much easier to dispose of than their quarterbacks. It's very rare to have a head coach achieve the level of celebrity that their players, especially quarterbacks, do. Therefore, they are the easiest and most compelling option to use as the scapegoat when one is needed. If the fans are out for blood, they need someone to sacrifice the altar of their ambitions and irrationalities. Being a fan of the NFL for the longest time, coaches getting whacked on a consistent basis didn't shock me anymore. And as a fan of the historically atrocious Cleveland Browns, I like to think I'm particularly desensitized. Rarely does anything in the league in terms of personnel decisions shock me. However, on the most recent Black Monday, the biggest shock of my NFL Black Monday life occurred. Brian Flores was fired as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins after only three years of a six-year contract. Now, it's not uncommon for a head coach to be fired after three seasons. Hell, Urban Meyer publicly over the pants to grow in public and still managed to last 13 games. Weird shit can happen in NFL, NFL circles. But Brian Flores was different. I thought incredibly highly of Brian Flores when he was a candidate. Coming out of the vaunted New England Patriots coaching ladder as Bill Belichick's go-to defensive mastermind, Flores was considered a top candidate for the head coaching position for a head coaching position for years. I was a huge fan of him and wanted, to do, wanted him to do well. He's a man of high character and class. He seems like an excellent role model of how to carry yourself. Plus, he was really good at the job. That's a pretty unique combination to be a leader of men. It's highly valued, and eventually Miami smartly pounced on him. The Miami Dolphins are far from a great franchise, and even further from the days when the legends of Dan Marino and Don Shula prowled the halls. But even so, Brian Flores went into a great situation. He had six years to do the job. He had the fifth pick in the upcoming draft, with which they drafted Tua Tagovailoa, one of the hottest quarterback prospects the NFL had seen in a long time. They had a spattering of good players all over the team. The Miami Dolphins did very well in Flores' first year. They had a winning season and barely missed the playoffs. The second year started off rocky, but eventually righted itself after a massive winning streak led them to just missing out on a playoff berth once again. In a division with the always tough Patriots and the surging Buffalo Bills, the Miami Dolphins and Brian Flores were proving that they could compete. They were proving that they weren't a joke. They were proving that they can and should be taken very seriously. But then, to the shock of myself and the entire league, Flores was out on the street, and Miami was crucified for that decision. For a long time, and especially recently, there has been a popular narrative that has circled the NFL that black coaches do not get the same opportunities as people of other races. 
The situation with Brian Flores and the Miami Dolphins officially blew the powder keg open. From every corner of sports and culture, people weighed in on the issue, almost universally condemning the NFL for their, quote, transgression towards Brian Flores. Brian Flores, seeing an opportunity to hop on, immediately switched from the stoic football mastermind to the oppressed victim, launching an anti-discrimination lawsuit against the NFL for, quote, wronging him. I initially agreed with him, and how could I not? Brian Flores had not done anything to get fired, at least from what I can tell. He seemed very competent and fully in control. But I, and most of the sports media, missed one thing. In all situations like this, regardless of how strongly we feel about something, we must ask ourselves one question, the essential question. What if I'm wrong? No one cared enough to ask this question as the Brian Flores saga unfolded. And the reality is, even though Brian Flores had a lot of favorable marks as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, he had some pretty notable blemishes too, even if he or no one else didn't want to point them out. He destroyed Tua Tugavailoa's confidence his rookie season by pulling him in their playoff deciding game for Ryan Fitzpatrick. He still has yet to recover. He furthered it by pushing the Miami Dolphins front office to trade for, their infamous, for the now infamous Deshaun Watson, which ultimately was squashed. The war apparently continued in other ways afterwards. They were constantly fighting with one another. And, unfortunately for all my defensive coaches, they're going out of style as head coaching picks in a league that, in my opinion unfairly, automatically asserts offensive dominance. The head coaching trend has swung that way as well. People like Brian Flores with defensive backgrounds have been devalued by the market in favor of their more offensive-minded counterparts. But the reality of all of this is, we still don't know. We don't know what really went on behind the curtain of the Miami Dolphins' decision to do this. And in reality, we shouldn't care. The Miami Dolphins are a private business. If they can believe that this can help them win games, and they have justification for firing Brian Flores, they should have a right to do so. They should with any personnel decision they made. Just look at what happened with Tua Tagovailoa. But no one has asked the essential question. No one has questioned the questioning behind the Brian Flores incident, or any other incident like it, for that matter. So the next question you must ask is, why are people doing this? Why are people disenfranchising groups of people based on individual people, excuse me, based on group identity? Why are they stripping away their individuality? The answer, of course, is power. This is how all authoritarian and dictatorship-based societies work. They want to strip away individuality. The reason is because when you strip a person's individuality from them, they are much easier to control. When you rid the world of unique individuals, you are only left with a drab and boring collective. Many things are hard to control. It's almost impossible. So, the people that are pushing the narrative of opposite of good decision-making are the ones that want the opposite. A group of people who all believe the same thing is easy to hold hostage. They're easily manipulated and have a far easier time falling into simplistic traps that are laid for them to their own peril. The crushing of individualism in favor of collective consciousness is the easiest way to make your presence felt. It's the easiest way to seize and maintain power, mostly over people who don't even know that they're powerless. It's a gesture that can only be undertaken in the full potential by the cruelest in our society. These people fail to understand the basic facts about human nature that we mentioned earlier. All of us, no matter who we are or what we look like, pursue privilege. Privilege is not a bad thing. It's a back-end reward for all the hard work and suffering you've willingly undertaken to get a certain place. A CEO has access to a private jet because he or she worked their ass off to get access to that. Someone who works for them generally does not because they chose to not do these things. No one is inherently, quote, privileged based upon something they cannot control. 
It's a blatant falsity because it, dir across directly, it cuts directly across the meaning of the word itself. However true what people perceive as privilege, the bad kind, is the abuse of your influence over people. These people, the ones that automatically decide who deserves to be sovereign and who doesn't, are clear violators of this principle. The method that they choose to con condescend that false sense of privilege onto is one that we've become familiar with throughout this post. They specifically target this thing and then use it to devalue all the others that happen as a consequence. So what is that thing? Decision making. Tucker Carlson has a, fa a very famous and very true quote that states, quote, Whatever people accuse you of doing or being is often what they are doing and being themselves, end quote. This is true privilege. It is the gaslighting, the lies, and the deflection of responsibility that cause your ego to inflate by getting high off the virtues of the people you're exploiting. Just like in the example with the toughness gap, true weakness is when you remove someone's sovereignty. Decision-making, and good decision-making, is the ultimate show of sovereignty. Without the capacity to make a decision for yourself and the proper knowledge to express those desires, there is no way that people can improve their lives and get better. The sick irony of all of this is that it's always the truly privileged, the ones who are truly abusing their power and the power over people, that are telling it to people that just look just like them. Women's in position, women in positions of power will often wax philosophical about how women are, quote, disadvantaged. Minorities will often talk about how they're, quote, oppressed. White people will often talk about how they're getting, quote, reversed whatevered. The hypocrisy is outrageous. It's a power trip on ecstasy. No one can come down because no one wants to come down. Any pushback against the orthodoxy is immediately crushed. No one is allowed to be an individual. No one is allowed to make a decision that does not affect those in power and privilege in a positive light, even though it could be very well be a decision that is good for that individual. This mentality is, obviously, sickening and dangerous. If we do not encourage individualism through decision-making, much of the advantages that people have reaped for long periods of time will stop in their tracks. People will stop making things. People will stop attempting to find love and have children. People would become mindless and purposeless widgets that are enslaved because of the lies that people above their heads told them. But there are ways that we can push back by focusing on that individual level of our condition. There are ways in which we can encourage and enforce a good decision-making framework and mindset in our head. They're our decisions. They matter greatly on the outcome of our lives. They determine the outcome of our lives. We can't waste an opportunity like this. So let's start out by learning how. Fortunately, there is a way out of the hive mind of being boxed into collectivization by people that don't want the best for you. That's rule number two, by the way. Treat yourself as you, if you were someone you were responsible for helping. Because you are someone who you are responsible for helping. No one can help you if you don't first help yourself. The greatest way you can do this, contrary to the narrative that we discussed in the last section, is by making the, positive, the proper decisions necessary in order to improve your life. It doesn't matter where you are or whether it's a favorable situation or not a favorable situation. You can always get better. There is no finish line because there is no perfect human being. However, if you aspire to try to get to that ideal or try to get as close as possible to the target, being as close to as perfect as possible is a pretty damn good spot to be in. But this is not as simple as it seems. 
You cannot just turn a frame of mind on, on and off like a light switch. It is something that must be honed and refined through practice. It is a mindset. It is something that you must constantly embody. It isn't something that is static, either. It is dynamic, ever-changing, and ever-flowing. It is never the same, because life is never the same. Life always seems to hand us something new, and usually something ridiculous. We live in a very complicated world with very complicated people that run a lot of very complicated institutions. That does not mean, however, that we have to participate in the complexity. We need to understand complexity, certainly, because the world is not simple and aggregate. But there are things we can do to simplify our lives to the point where we don't drive ourselves to the point of insanity about things that mostly don't mean a fucking thing in the long run. Simplicity is often the key to many of the ills in life, with a simple framework for making decisions of being of the most important. To escape the collective fate that people who want to abuse it want to box you in, this is the court you must chart. The easiest way to start mapping your, this, the mapping of this course, and conversely the hardest, is to develop and define your personal value system. I constantly harp on this point, but I wouldn't have to if there wasn't a market for it. And, unfortunately, the reality is that there is a market for it. Markets do not exist in things that are abundant. They only exist in things that are lacking. You can't sell air. Water sells for very cheap. Not a lot of things are like those things because not a lot of things are as plentiful as those things, and thank God for that. Values fall into the latter category. They are the most rare commodity on the planet for the strict and simple reason that they are personal to you and you alone. You may value the same things as others, and that is a wonderful thing. It grants you community and the people to confide in for advice and protection against the horrors of the world. But in the end, your values must be the starting point for everything. They are your values, if you weren't aware. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the happiest and most fulfilled people that reside on the earth are those that are aware of this. Those who know definitively, definitively of where they derive their value in life from are usually the ones that live better than the rest. They are founded in their fundamental values so deeply that they usually don't know how to live otherwise. It is constructive solitary confinement. You're locked in, but at least you're not completely involved in chaos. It's all about what kind of pain you want to sustain. There is no free lunch. The reason why people can be, find so much fulfillment in this arena of life is because after a while they become self-evident. The reason why people are so drawn to religion, whether you're religious or not, newsflash, is because of the same factor. It doesn't change. It grounds you. It makes you have to work less hard. Religion, if nothing else, is a technology. It makes it easier for us to live in a world that is ever defined by less order and more by chaos. When you know this, when you can reside in a hierarchy of values, this makes your decision process much easier. You just do what you've always done by valuing what you've always valued. You don't ch cook chocolate chip cookies by making oatmeal raisin cookie dough. First, that makes you a fucking psychopath. Second, it would be con completely contradictory to the recipe. It wouldn't make sense. They wouldn't re reinforce one another. They're diametrically opposed. Make it easier on yourself. Value something. Value many things if you dare. And then use that technology to help you reinforce your decision-making methodology and process. Odds are it will give you your brain and conscience a rest, so that you can have something to handle that load for you. You'll thank yourself for it later, believe me. But it's not enough just to help yourself. You need to help, you need to help others. Wait a minute, that was wrong. But it's not enough to just help yourself. You can't succumb to entitlement and narcissism. Selfishness is in no way to lead a, is no way to lead a life of fulfillment and meaning. Can't read today, as I said earlier. 
it will usually lead you to the opposite. Thus, it would also help to do the things that are in the best nature to help other people within your life. Not only will this reinforce that positive feedback loop we discussed earlier within your mind, but it will also compel those other people to do the same for you. Reciprocity is one of the great inventions of human psychology, and you would be wise to do whatever you can to turn it in your favor. The reality about making good decisions in life is that they feel better even when you help others too. If you drink too much, you'll help your family just as much as you help yourself if you taper it back. They'll worry about you less. You'll worry about them more. You do things more constructively with your time. Your family will appreciate you more and compliment you on the better quality of life that resides directly as a consequence of what you've done to help yourself. And that's even somewhat of a selfish decision you can make. Imagine if you were even remotely out of your way for someone. These do not have to be big gestures. It can be reaching out to someone you haven't talked to in a while to see how they're doing and not faking it either, by the way. It can be helping to clean a room in the house to help your girlfriend get a break for the first time in four months. It can be helping your children prepare for a test by reading the next chapter in their textbook to prepare yourself for when they have to study it. In making these types of decisions, you will help to reverse the feedback loop that gets pushed onto your skull by people who push, up, push the counter-narrative. The people that tell you you cannot help yourself are of no use to you. They're not your friends. They don't want the best for you. They only want the best for themselves. The way they think that they can attain this is by minimizing you and your individualized decision-making process by outsourcing it to what you're, quote, supposed to be doing with your life. Don't let them inside your head and take you out of your game. You play your game. You make your decisions. You're responsible for your life. Anyone who tells you that you're not and that you can duck it is someone you should immediately put in your, quote, do not trust category. Finally, and most importantly... It's always wise to remember that it is, indeed, okay to get better. In case you need a final reminder, please remember that we all pursue privilege in society. It's okay, really. It's the core of the human condition. It's why we strive and pursue anything we deem of having greater importance and meaning than most other things. Do not be afraid to make your life better. Don't listen to the people that tell you that it's somehow, quote, wrong to do so. Again, this is a nonsensical thing to say. Why would you want someone to say the same if that sameness is not helping them get to a better place in life? Why would you want to hold someone back from reaching a better place and potentially inspiring others to do the same with theirs? There are reasons for this, of course, but they're not good ones. Remember, these people are generally very controlling and manipulative people who take great pleasure out of condescending to others by making them feel th these types of emotions. But there is another reason that is perhaps more obvious, but definitely one that is less talked about. This is, in my opinion... Harder than for most people who don't make good decisions and shame the ones to do admit that they all we've talked about so far throughout the post. These people are absolutely fucking miserable. Don't fall for the counter-narrative, the gaslighting, and the lies. The philosophy of owning everything in your life and making positive decisions that affect you and the ones you love in good standing is the way out of it. Anyone who says the collectivization of suffering and treating anyone else as an quote outgroup as part of some oppressed minority who can't achieve individual success through individual merit is not a person you should want to surround yourself with. This contains a dichotomy, however. You should not succumb to mindless positivity while undertaking this endeavor. Mindless positivity is just as mindless as mi numbing as mindless negativity. I've railed against this about this mindset many times in the past, and for good reason. But the reality is that simply not being miserable all the time goes a long way. You have no obligation and no rationale to make yourself miserable. None. 
The unfortunate reality is that most of these people who do not believe in the quality of your decisions and reinforce this garbage mindset are horrifically self-loathing and resentful. They're very sad and empty people who have nothing better to do because they have taken up no meaningful burden in life. They have no responsibilities, no struggle, and no hardship. They're desperately out of control with both their own minds and realities. You should not want to be like them. The sovereign person is the content person. Strive to be content by controlling your life as much as you can. The truth, made possible by truthful action and decisions, does indeed set you free. Our sovereignty is sacred. It is the fundamental principle that we are endowed with at birth by our higher our power and creator. The greatest exercise and greatest honor we can bestow upon that birthright is to use it responsibly. It is not responsible to use your sovereignty in ways that do not constructively benefit you and those that you love and care for. Making good decisions is not selfish. It is not oppressive. It is the exact opposite of both. In each good decision made, you make an individual contribution to the world that states that you are using power for good and not for privilege. This is a calling that all of us as human beings should strive towards. Or Joy Reid or QAnon levels of misery. Different strokes for different folks, I guess. And that's all she wrote, folks. That's all, folks. Whatever Looney Tunes shit that is. I need to watch more Looney Tunes. But anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that one. I had a really good time writing that one. Again, it's something I deem as really, really important. I think you guys all should too. So think about it. Whatever you want to do, I can't control your life. You did control your life. That was the whole point of this fucking post anyway. So own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? Shit.